Uh, so I want to talk about Goodhart's Law. Um, Goodhart's Law uh, is often abbreviated to say, like, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So you can think about that as you have, like, some goal V that is something that you want, and you have some measure of V, which is U, which is, like, something that you're actually able to measure, and then you start optimizing U, and the process of optimizing U, like, breaks the connection between U and V. So this is relevant to us as EAs because we care about things and we measure things and we optimize things. And this is all about how that goes badly. Um, uh, so I'm specifically talking not just about like what happens when you have a bad measure, but like the, the act of optimizing breaking the value of your measure. Uh, and this is relevant to uh, like thinking about how thinking about rationality, thinking as, as an individual human, and thinking about organizations, and also about thinking also for thinking about AI alignment. Um, so there are four categories. Like the main thing I want to want to show is that there are four categories of different ways in which this can happen. Uh, the first is regressional. So this one is very benign. This is just the when you are optimizing for the proxy. And the proxy is like the real goal, is not exactly the real goal. And when you make the proxy large, you are making the real goal large, but you're also like putting some optimization pressure towards the difference between your proxy and your real goal, which means that your proxy will, uh, like reliably be an overestimate of your real goal. Um, next is causal. This is, Basically, like correlation is not causation. If you like observe that your proxy is like tied in with your goal, then you uh, and then you start optimizing for the thing that is your proxy. That that connection might no longer happen because like it. What actually happened was maybe uh, some third thing like caused both of them. And then when you like increase your proxy, your goal fails to also increase. Um, the next two are more interesting. Extremal is about how the uh, extremal is about how the real goal, the, the worlds in which the proxy are very large, are might be meaningfully different from the worlds in which you observe the correlation between the proxy and the goal. So this this can actually have this is much less benign than the regressional thing over here. Like you could imagine that under like small small optimization power there's like a uh, connection between your proxy and your and your goal but maybe like as your optimization gets very strong you might be in a different domain where instead of like naturally occurring correlations being the thing that affects stuff you have like resource limitations being the thing that affects stuff and then like all the observations that you made or, that originally connected uh, your proxy and the goal kind of go away um, and the last one is adversarial. So this is saying that the act of optimizing for your proxy U is providing an incentive for other agents to connect things that they want with the thing that you're optimizing. Right? If I'm gonna if I'm gonna optimize for something and and you want some other thing, you want like to connect up the thing that you want with the thing that that I'm optimizing for. And if you think about, like, well, maybe my goal ha requires some, uh, 
resources and your true goal also requires some resources, but like my proxy doesn't really, isn't really fighting for resources the same way that we are. If I'm using that proxy to optimize, then like you're incentivized to make the world such that my, the, when my proxy is large, actually your goal is satisfied, which destroys the connection with my goal. Um, as quick examples in basketball, uh, regressional is just if you take some really high person, you take some really tall person, like tall, height is connected, <laughs> height is connected to basketball ability. If you take some really tall person, they will not be the best at basketball, even, even if, even compared to somebody who's maybe a little bit shorter but has more basketball ability. Uh, in causal, this is you, uh, if you want to get tall, you should not practice basketball. Um, in extremal, this is like the tallest person in the world like actually has a disease which makes them unable to play basketball because they're wearing leg braces. And adversarial is like, well, if you're measuring like something about height, people are incentivized to do things to like cheat your metric in order because their goals are to uh, get into your basketball team. Uh, that's it. Thank you. Sorry. Thanks so much. Now we're going to do a quick switcheroo to the next presentation. This way? I don't know how to play it. It should be very obvious, sorry. Ah, sorry, there we go. Mm -hmm. I use Google Slides, sorry. Beautiful, all right, 21st century. Um, all right, so our next uh, presenter is Fennan Adamson. Uh, he organizes the Seattle Effective Altruism and Rationality Group, and he has been working for the Alliance to Feed Earth in Disasters under a grant from the Center for Effective Altruism. Welcome, Fennan, to the stage. Hello, I'm going to talk real fast here because we only have a few minutes. Uh, so I'm here to talk about AllFed. Uh, as was said, it's the Alliance to Feed Earth and Disasters. So far, that's mostly research from Dave Dankenberger and Joshua Pierce. We're focused on two kinds of scenarios, scenarios in which the sun is blocked and scenarios in which industry fails, so in which the power grid fails for a long time. Uh, the sun could be blocked by things like nuclear winter, uh, super volcano or asteroid impact. We could have industry failure from things like high altitude electromagnetic pulse from nuclear weapons, uh, solar flare or cyber attack. So our goal is to feed everyone in these disasters. Uh, in industry disabled scenarios, which is what I'm talking about here, the main thing we'd be doing, uh, is, uh, sorry. We've done some research into the technical solutions here of how to feed everyone in industry-disabled scenarios. Um, much of the past and current policy around preparing for this kind of disaster is just storing food. That has a couple of problems. One, we only have about six months of stored food globally, uh, and many of these disasters could cause problems longer than that. And if we were to invest a lot of money in storing more food now, that would drive up the price of food, causing more people to starve in the present. Uh, so one way that pre-industrial agriculture might look in an industry-disabled scenario, sorry, 
one way that agriculture might look in an industry-disabled scenario is like pre-industrial agriculture, which was about 60% lower than modern agriculture. We do have some advantages. We understand a little bit more about fertilizer, um, and the world is more connected, so transporting food between places would be a little easier. Uh, it would take time to uh, build, let people build the skills, because we would need more people farming, and to build tools necessary for doing this. Uh, so we could use stored food during that transition period. Uh, the main thing we'd be doing in this would be planting higher ca calorie per hectare crops, and uh, we could clear some land for more farmland. Um, some non-food needs are fairly simple. In industry-disabled scenarios, you can dig pit latrines, you can boil water, you can make soap from animal fat. Um, one of the non-food non needs that is not simple is transporting food, which is something that would be necessary. Uh, ships can be retrofitted with sails if there is some fuel available. If there's no fuel available, then uh, traditional sailing still works. Uh, so we've done some like back-of-the-envelope calculations about what we could do. So we think with about $30 million, uh, a shortwave radio for backup system for backup communication could be developed. Manuals for producing food and other needs could be developed and tested. And uh, we could get response plans available to governments and or other organizations. Uh, so you may have seen our cost-effectiveness model out uh, during the poster session. There will be another one at 7. Uh, that's for the sunblock scenarios. We're developing another cost-effectiveness model for industry-disabled scenarios, and that's something you can help us with. So I'm going to take a quick audience poll. Uh, so for each, I'll ask these questions one at a time, and then for each category, I'm going to have you raise your hands for more than 10%, between 1% and 10%, 0.1% and 1%, and less than 0.1%. So the first question is, what is your estimate of the loss in far future potential due to catastrophe due to a catastrophe that disables industrial civilization globally with current preparations. So it's saying, as is right now, a industry-disabled scenario happens, how much of the future potential is lost? Uh, I'm just going to keep going because we don't have much time. Um, expected loss, sure. Uh, so... Raising your hands high for each category, more than 10%. Okay. Uh, 1 to 10%. 0.1 uh, to 1%. And less than 0.1%. Okay. Thank you. And for the second question, what is your estimate that the loss in far future, at, of the loss in far future potential due to a catastrophe if we spent $30 million on preparation? So we enact the things in the last slide. Uh, how much of the future is lost if such a disaster occurs then? Greater than 10%? And 1 to 10%? <laughs> Wait, keep them up. Okay, and 0.1 to 1%? And less than 0.1%. Okay. And I believe that's all the time we have. Uh, feel free to go to our website if you want. You can check out our, our research there. Thank you.
Now I want the answer. <laughs> but alas, I think you're going to have to go online and see. I think they've done a few other polls like this at other conferences, so you might get a, a better sense of what other people have been thinking, too. Um, our third presenter is Phil Trammell. Uh, he is a researcher at the Fama Miller Center for Research and Finance at the University of Chicago. And we're going to do a, a hopefully switch, a quick switcheroo. Is this one yours? Great. And then this time we can actually do the presentation. And um, yep. There we go. Great. Right. Um, we're all familiar with the idea of being uncertain about the true state of the world. Um, that includes being uncertain about what the consequences, the empirical consequences of our actions will be. But we can also be unsure about what we ought to do, even given well-specified beliefs about the state of the world. Like we know it's going to happen or we have a precise probability distribution over what we think will happen. Um, we can still be uncertain about what we should do. That's called normative uncertainty. Um, two kinds of normative uncertainty that would be uh, decision affecting um, are moral uncertainty and decision theoretic uncertainty. So for instance, um, we might come across an opportunity to tell a lie and save a life. And even though we know exactly what the consequences would be, we just don't know what true morality is. It might be the right thing to do that or the wrong thing. Um, we might also be unsure about what the right way is to respond to uncertainty about the state of the world. So whether we should maximize expected utility, um, as one decision theory would say, the most commonly accepted one, or whether we should do something else, like be really risk averse and be min-maxers, you know, minim um, minimize the probability of the worst off, uh, the worst possible outcome. Um, it's uh, relatively common in the EA community to think that we should take normative uncertainty seriously. We should think about our credences in, in these you know, normative standards of behavior and incorporate this uncertainty into our decision making. Um, Will McCaskill and Toby Ord, the EA philosophers crowd, um, specialize in normative uncertainty. And um, so that means that there's a lot of like EA brain power being put into being into this, this research question. Um, some people have raised an objection to the whole concept of normative uncertainty, which is that it seems to lead to an infinite regress. The idea is, um, if we don't know uh, what we ought to do in the face of uncertainty about what we ought to do, then it's like, well, what ought we to do if we don't know what we ought to do about what we ought to do? You know? And um, so maybe the whole concept of normative uncertainty isn't coherent. But it's, it feels like it's not. It feels like I can be unsure about what the right moral or decision theoretic uh, framework is. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's uh, something I kind of spent some time to think about. Um, now, the, uh, the, the solution that I think makes most sense is to say that you do have this infinite regress, but it reaches a fixed point for one reason or another. And um, so you have well-defined subjective choice worthiness as as they say, um, for, for all the acts that you could perform, uh, whether to tell the lie, to save the life, or whatever. Um, this is a little stylized, but let's say you had um, 
the option to give $5,000 to the AMF and save a life for sure or something. You kind of, that's what you think. And, um, the, the, and, and, or the option to give, uh, the $5,000 to a biosecurity intervention, which, um, has, which will almost certainly save zero lives, but which has a one in a billion chance of saving one and a half billion lives. So this is just a simple case of decision, decision theoretic uncertainty. Um, you don't know whether to, let's say you're certain that moral value is linear and like lives saved, to make things simple, but you're just not sure whether to maximize the expected value or something else. Um, the, uh, so what expected utility theory would say is that the, that what you ought to do is maximize the expected value. And so in this framework, um, what expected utility theory says is that the first order meta choice worthiness of the risky intervention is the same as its expected value. So in this case, it's 1.5. And that's higher than the one that you can get by giving to the AMF. So you should do it. Um, but let's say you assign a 50% chance to expected utility theory, being the normatively correct decision theory, and a 50% chance to some risk weighted alternative, which says that the subjective choice worthiness of the act should be um, halfway between the minimum possible uh, outcome that could result and the expected value. According to that alternative risk-weighted theory, um, the subjective choice worthiness ought to be 0 0.75, not 1.5. So you're not sure um, what it should be subjectively. So um, what should you do in the face of this normative uncertainty? Um, sorry, yeah. um, well, Let's say you have the same distribution over theories at every order of the hierarchy. You don't have to, but just to be simple, let's, let's say that you do. Um, well, there's a 50% chance that what you ought to do in the face of this first order uncertainty is take the expected value. Um, and there's a 50% chance that you ought to do some risk-weighted thing. And so on. And this can go on forever. And as long as certain mathematical properties are met um, about the hierarchy, then it'll converge, and the subjective choice worthiness of the act will be well defined. And um, in this case, it'll equal one. I mean, I set it up so that it would equal one. And so you would be you would be indifferent between the risky intervention, but with a slight, slightly higher expected value, and uh, and the the five thousand to the AMF. Um, so this is all sort of stylized and abstract, but the point is just that on its own, the regress problem is not a knockdown objection to the whole concept of normative uncertainty. Um, your, your hierarchy of metanormative uncertainty could, if it satisfies some conditions, like, like always compromising between the, the points at the orders below it, for instance, um, you'll always, uh, you'll always reach convergence. Um, the, yeah, I mean, you go a lot more into it, but that's, I think that basically is the main takeaway. Maybe normative uncertainty makes sense after all. Um, maybe research into all of this um, all this theorizing about what one ought to do in the face of uncertainty or, or metanormal uncertainty um, is, uh, is actually valuable. And what the value is falls out of the model naturally. So you can work out like, oh, I should spend 30% of my time reading a decision theory book before I make this really momentous decision, or like 10% or whatever. So that, that follows from the framework. And, um, and so, yeah, so maybe there's some, some value to it. Thank you.
Um, we're going to do a brief transition, actually brief this time, pulling a poster board over while we do the fourth one. Do you mind, like, yeah, actually pulling a poster board? Great. So our final speaker is Lawrence Chan. He's a PhD student in computer science at UC Berkeley. In addition to working on AI safety, he collaborates with Philip Tetlock at the University of Pennsylvania on improving forecasting. And I guess picks up markers sometimes too. <laughs> Uh, hopefully, yep, there we go. Oh, I'm really bad at the marker thing. Um, so hello, everyone. As uh, you probably guessed, my talk is on forecasting. Um, so a lot of effort, people, a lot of people in EA care about forecasting and having good and calibrated forecasts. Um, and historically, like a lot of people around the world, in universities, in the intelligence community, have also cared about this. Uh, but we spent a lot of time focusing mainly on um, how do we improve forecasts given the current like metrics for good forecasts that we have already? And most of the metrics that we have are based on um, calibration or uh, correspondence-based scores. Basically, like uh, you know, here's here's what the true outcome was. Here's what your probability that you assign at a given time was. Um, now let's do this sort of comparison. So, like the classical Briar or log-based scores are fall into this category. Um, but in reality, uh, when we make forecasts over time, uh, there are other like desiderata that we might want to satisfy. Like we might, we might, um, we might like not want to be, we might like, we might need to satisfy other criteria basically. Um, and I think like a, a classic illustrating example, um, I guess Chris Painter isn't here, so I can't use him for the example. But, um, so an example would be, suppose I'm trying to forecast what the, uh, what the weather would be like in two weeks. So on June 24th, what's the weather like in San Francisco? Um, I might like, you might uh, plot a chart of the probability I assign to it being sunny. So here's like P sunny. And here's, um, you know, time. So today I might like say, oh, you know, it's pretty sunny outside. So I'm, I presume it's going to be sunny in two weeks. And then I assign a very high probability, say like 90%. Um, and then tomorrow I, you know, don't feel very well. I might just give a 10% probability. And then, you know, the day after, I might be very happy. I'll say 95%. Um, and then, you know, like 5%. Um, all right, that's not a straight line. But pe people can basically see that just like looking at this sort of probability estimate, that there's probably something not correct about it. Um, and in fact, like, uh, you know, you can actually quantify how incorrect this is from a certain perspective. Um, so in economics... Uh, in the efficient, in, when people study financial markets, there's an idea of the, uh, an efficient financial market. So one where you can't expect to predict, um, like ex you can't predict expected price changes. Where like the expected price of a commodity, so like E of X, you know, given your knowledge, let's call it like F. Um, so like XT plus one is equal to the price today. Um, and this is the notion of like efficiency in the economic sense. Um, and this sort of belief is probably not uh, efficient, right? Because you can just look at this and then say, oh, if my belief is over 90% tomorrow, it's probably, like today, it's probably going to be under, you know, 20% tomorrow and vice versa. Um, and so like, uh, like using this as an inspiration, you can actually develop a lot of tests by going to the economics literature and like looking at what sort of properties do um, efficient beliefs or efficient markets need to satisfy. Um, and I'll briefly go over three of them right now. So there's the classic, uh, you know, you shouldn't expect to predict which direction your beliefs or in which your prices move. Um, so basically you can just like calculate like 
the expected, uh, like you can try to like approximate this expectation, or you can try to approximate the difference conditioned on the current um, information available to you. Uh, and then you can just check if it's zero. Um, so you shouldn't expect any price changes or any like uh, belief changes. Basically, if I know that my belief is going to be 10% tomorrow, and I think like I'm you know not going to be crazy tomorrow, I'm still going to have good reason for believing that it's 10% tomorrow. I should just believe that it's 10% tomorrow. Um, and likewise, if I like, likewise, there's also a sense in which like I, my belief shouldn't move around too much. Um, if we see that like my beliefs are go from like 90% today to 10% tomorrow to 95% to 5%, um, there's like a sense in which this doesn't like this is just moving around too much. Um, and you can actually quantify this sense and then perform tests on this. Uh, and finally, um, what people actually do a lot in the, in economics literature is they devise some trick uh, through which they can make money in the market. Uh, and then attempt to check whether or not this trick actually works. So you can do the same thing. You can try to think if there are a system of bets uh, that you as a forecaster would take that would like lose you money, even though the system of bets only uses information available to you. Um, and then so basically if you fail those tests, if you like are willing to if you like make bets that you know you're going to lose money in, then that probably means that uh you know you're not doing a good job forecasting. Um, uh, so you, for example, um, this is this checking whether or not the expected uh, price change is one way to make money. But you could also like sell straddles, or you can um, do things like I'll co I'll commit to buying at a certain point and then I'll commit to selling at a certain point. And oftentimes, like uh, formulating in terms of strategies to exploit the market is more natural for humans uh, than you know going up there and then trying to do the math in your head whether or not the expectation is equal to the current value. Yep. Um, so I think I'm out of time. So thank you very much. You're welcome to come talk to me after. All right. With that, I think it's a wrap. We have a closing talk next. So go ahead to that. And then if you want to speak to any of the speakers, post your session at 7. Thanks so much.